Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. series in Acts. We're going to be in Acts 11 today. Acts 10 and 11 actually work together as a set. So we were in Acts 10 last week. If you missed that, you may want to go back and listen to this. This is kind of part two from the sermon we began last week. And really what we see in in both of these chapters is this encounter in God's work in the lives of two men, Cornelius and Peter. And in this, I mentioned last week that this is one of the most important sections of the Bible. In fact, the single encounter of Peter with Cornelius takes up almost two whole chapters of the book of Acts. Now, that's remarkable. One of the things we, we learn when we think about um, kind of Bible study methods is that, that you want to look at the amount of space something is given in the God's revelation, which ought to tell you something about the importance of what it is you're seeing. And so if you see something that takes a lot of space, you ought to go, ah, I wonder why, wonder why God wanted us to see so much of this and wanted to explain this so, in such a detailed manner. Here's what's interesting. Back in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's this amazing, life-altering thing for all of the church and all of church history. And yet what we see is that only is given uh, about a chapter, a little less than a chapter. This encounter takes almost two chapters. In Acts 2, we see 3,000 people be converted to faith in Christ, and they get all of one verse. This one dude, Cornelius, and his family get 66 verses. So I think there's a question we ought to ask is, what, what's God saying here? What's going on? What's the point that God wants us to understand by spending so much time explaining this? Now, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think the Holy Spirit's descent is really not just explained in Acts 2. I think it shows up through the whole book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament. So I think there's lots of other places that comes in. But that doesn't minimize the fact that this has given so much attention and ought to kind of get our attention. In the progress of God's revelation of all that God is doing throughout human history from Genesis all the way through the Bible, uh, we see that this is an important thing that's happening in the midst of this passage. Now, here's what I want you to know. I don't think it's just important for the people of that day. I think what he's saying is actually incredibly important for you and for me. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I think the thing we're going to look at today is one of the things that I see tripping people up more in our current day than almost anything else. I think this is an incredibly important thing for us to understand. I think one of the reasons it gets so much space is because it was, it's really difficult to wrap your brain around. And here's the issue. What is essential to the gospel and what is cultural that gets wrapped around the gospel that sometimes we attach to it? And how do you differentiate the cultural stuff that, that becomes trappings for the gospel from the actual core of the gospel message that Jesus came to bring? I think that was important in Acts. We're going to, in fact, and see in Acts 15, that's still being unpacked. We see throughout the rest of the New Testament, especially in Galatians, this is something that the, that the followers of Jesus are continuing to wrestle with. Uh, we see it throughout church history, whether you look at uh, Augustine or Luther or Calvin or, uh, or, or Jonathan Edwards, or you look at any of the heroes of the faith as you move through church history, you see people wrestling with how does my current culture relate to 
the core message of the gospel. And it's continuing to be a struggle, not just in that day, but in our day as well. In fact, a friend of mine wrote an article a few years ago, and I feel like he kind of got his fingers on the pulse of what's going on in our current world when he began to address this issue. And he began to wrestle with it. One of the things that, that I would agree with is that he said, I, I find that a lot of my friends and people I connect with are disoriented by some of what they experience in Christian culture. Now, can, can you relate to any of that at all? Just the stuff that you see flying around online from different group segments of Christian culture that you just look and go, dude, I don't know what's going on, but these people seem to hate each other. Or I don't know what's going on, but these people seem really angry about something. Or I don't know what's going on, but there seems to be a lot of bullets flying across the, the bow of these people's lives, and you're not sure what's happening. And Now, what happens is they're not discouraged by everything they see, but some of it certainly is. And what people are wrestling with, there's a term that's kind of become common for that, which is deconstruction. Uh, and that idea is not really very helpful because it un tries to unpack everything that has to do with the core of the gospel message and conflates the, co the culture and the gospel. What we need, I think, is actually a different approach. Now, I think what most people that are wrestling with these things and sometimes experience doubts um, are, are, are really not trying to get rid of their faith. They're not trying to get rid of Jesus. They're trying to make sense of their faith. They're trying to make sense of what was it Jesus came to do and why is it that this sometimes gets confused with all this other baggage and cultural trappings. And so they begin to wrestle the question. Now, maybe for you, it's that you grew up in the church. And so you grew up in kind of this, this Christian subculture or, or this, kind of, this kind of way of, of doing church life and this churchianity, so to speak, uh, where, where this kind of cultural thing gets wrapped in or this message of the gospel gets wrapped in this sort of church culture. And you're now looking at some of it going, I mean, some of this doesn't seem to fit what I see in the scriptures. Some of this doesn't seem to relate to what Jesus said. And I'm just trying to make sense of the Christian culture I, I found myself in. Or maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you grew up very much outside of church and you became a Christian and now all of a sudden you step into church and it just seems like a really weird place. Uh, anyone come to faith later in life and you step into church culture and you'd be like, dude, I didn't know any of these songs or bands existed. I didn't know, I don't know any of these, these words that you guys are using. You guys are throwing these things out like I'm supposed to know all these terms and I, I don't know these terms and you guys talk in a way that just, frankly, just seems weird. Like, I don't really understand what it means. I remember I had a guy that came into our small group one time and he was exploring faith and the greatest thing about it was we'd sit down in our small group and we'd open the Bible and we'd begin to have these conversations and people would, someone would say something and he'd just raise his hand and be like, yeah, I don't understand anything you said. Because they were saying things a certain way. And here's what happened that was so amazing in that instance. Was usually when he said, I don't understand anything you just said. About three other people in the group go, yeah, I don't really either. It's just the words we were taught to say. Because there's this kind of Christian culture thing that happens. And it begins to wrap itself around the core message of the gospel. And sometimes that can be confusing. So what we're going to look at today is how do we, what do we do with all of that? And my friend, as he was writing this article, he talked about a process called disenculturation. Uh, it's a really big word. Can everyone just say that for me? Man, you guys are still awake. That's good. I haven't lost anyone yet. Here's what he said. He said, disenculturation is the process used by missionaries to differentiate the gospel from culture. So to separate the gospel from the culture that it's wrapped in, we have to differentiate that. And the process is called disenculturation. Having moved from one culture to another, missionaries can see that the gospel is like a kernel protected by an outer husk. 
which we call culture. So the kernel or the core of the gospel gets wrapped in this outer protective husk that, that guards it. Now, a missionary's job is to ensure that the gospel kernel is freed to enter into a new culture without being captive to its old husk. What he's saying is that if we take the cultural trappings of the message of the gospel in this Americanized version, and we take it and we try to import it and apply it directly to India, that sometimes that cultural husk is actually going to cloud them from being able to see the beauty of the actual gospel. So they're not going to get to the kernel of the message and allow it to come to life because it's, they're distracted by all the outer trappings that it's wrapped in. He goes on to say there that um, this goes all the way back to, he says, the book of Acts, when the early church had to differentiate the culture, uh, the gospel from Judaism as it entered Gentile culture. So friends, that's what we're looking at today. Um, we're looking at the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts 10 and 11. And it's in this, these two chapters that we see this kind of transition that takes place where the gospel moves from this kind of primarily Jewish thing to this cultural, or to this Gentile uh, movement that goes out throughout the whole world. And we're gonna explore these tensions. You with me? It sound good? Because here's what we need to know. If we wanna enjoy the gospel with glad hearts, we need to let the core of the gospel break free from some of the cultural restraints so that it reigns freely and fully in our hearts. That's what we're going to look at. So let's look at Acts chapter 11. Let me read, and we're going to read the, just the first 18 verses, and we'll jump in there today. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who went throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the gospel of God. And when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice came to me a second time from heaven, saying, what God has made clean, clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times, and all that was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived in the house in which we were and sent, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go to them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak this message, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it fell upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same spirit as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When, these, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. And as we get to unpack this verse, what we see at the very beginning is kind of these concerns and criticisms that come to Peter. And so Peter has had this experience where he's gone to Cornelius. He's preached the gospel. Cornelius' family has responded. The Holy Spirit came down. It's now been several days later, and Peter spent several days with Cornelius and his family. And then he goes back to Jerusalem to the original disciples and begins to present the God, or tell them about everything that happened. Now, the first thing we see is it says, 
And right away, kind of things get weird. It says that Peter went up to Jerusalem to the circumcision party. Now, sounds kind of like a bad joke, doesn't it? Those are two words that should never go together, circumcision and party. Uh, that's just kind of a strange thing. I actually think there's a Seinfeld episode about that, but that's another story for another day. But these, uh, this is actually referring to a group of people who believe that all believers were supposed to... Um, we're supposed to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. So you notice their criticism of Peter. He says, you ate a meal and went into a house with uncircumcised men. Meaning these people are unclean, and if you're in their presence and if you eat their food, you yourselves are going to become unclean. They're going to defile you. Your, your purity spiritually is at risk because you entered into these people's house, and, and their concern was for one circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant uh, that the Jewish people were given, that they were to be circumcised as a sign of God's care for those people, and that the promise that God had given to Abraham, that they would have land, seed, and blessing, and they'd be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. It was a symbol. It was meant to represent that. And so they say, well, if you set aside that symbol, you're setting aside the covenant of God. And so you understand that was a concern for them. The other was the law. The law in the Old Testament, you look and it talks about blessings and cursings. And it says that as, as you obey the law, that life will go well with you. And so you'll experience the flourishing that God wants to give you as you obey. And so they're going, well, if we don't obey and if we don't do this, it feels like the whole, all the bets are off as far as what God's doing in the world. And they're a little confused. The problem is that Peter has taken both food of the Gentiles, but he also has had fellowship, meaning he shared a meal of brotherhood with the Gentiles. And so they bring Peter in and they begin to criticize him and ask him questions about what's going on. What they ultimately thought was that if a Gentile were to come to faith, they needed to basically become Jewish. And they needed to begin to look exactly like the Jews. And so Peter's behavior for centuries had been considered sinful and off limits in compromising of their spiritual health. So this is going to be a hard lesson for them to understand. It's going to take time. It's going to take process. It's going to, to require them to kind of reset spiritually the way they understand things. In fact, you look at around that time, there were other Jewish writings. Uh, one of those uh, spoke to this and tells us how, how enculturated this had become. It said, separate yourself from all the other nations. Don't eat with them. Do not do according to their works. Do not become an associate of theirs, for their works are unclean, and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. So when Peter goes and has a meal and comes back and begins to tell the circumcision party about everything that's happened, he's definitely walking kind of a cultural tightrope. Can you feel the tension that would have been present in that culture and in that day when these are the voices they've been hearing and all of a sudden Peter's saying, well, God's doing a new thing. And he begins to point them in a whole different direction. So in verse four, what we see is Peter says, I love this. He says, that Peter began to explain in an orderly way. Um, you know, if you've ever been in that situation where you know you're, you're in a little bit of trouble and you're a little bit of a hotbed, and you're like, okay, let me just explain to you what happened. And you begin to unfold the details in a very measured manner because you don't want to say anything wrong. That's what Peter's doing. It says, in an orderly fashion, he began to explain to him everything that, that transpired in the, in, in the situation before. And really, the key event in all this is this vision that Peter receives, that this sheet is handed down from heaven, and on that sheet are all these animals. And of these animals, these are animals that in the Old Testament were considered unclean. And yet God then says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill 
these animals and eat. And so Peter's really virtually retelling everything that happened in Acts chapter 10, and it's repetitive, but I think it's repetitive because they want us to feel the tension of what's going on. We saw Peter do it, and now Peter's retelling the story. He's like, I want to tell this just right because I want you to understand what's happening. Now, this may also be important for you. Have you ever wondered kind of what parts of the Old Testament apply to you and what don't? Uh, how do you understand the rituals and the ceremonies and all the things that happen in the Old Testament and how they relate to you? Why do you get to eat bacon, but they didn't, right? I mean, that, that's, that's one of the questions that you, that you ought to have. Why, do, why, did they, why don't we still sacrifice animals? Why don't we worry about the purity of different, uh, of different foods? And why, what aspects of the Old Testament are relevant to us and which ones do we get to discard? Uh, that ought to be one of the questions that you ask as you read your Bible, and you might have wrestled with that. Um, uh, the Bible was written, friends, over thousands of years, and God's revelation of himself and his plan was, was progressive. He gradually revealed more of himself. Now, when God set aside a people for himself, he gave them a law, and in that law, there were all these rituals that they had to, uh, that they had to adhere to, and they were meant to separate out the people of God and to protect them, to preserve the truth of God so that the message of God would come down through time. And so God gave them all these dietary codes of what could and couldn't be eaten. He gave them a distinct and, and true way of worshiping. He gave them rules for right cultural practices and guidelines for how they were to worship in the tabernacle or the temple. God established feasts like the Passover and the Day of Atonement and these different things that they were supposed to do and told them and prescribed exactly how they were supposed to do those things. And it was through those things that they stayed in right relationship to the God who had chosen the people of Israel to be his people. And in this process, what we understand is that all of these things, what we see in the New Testament is they were not to be fulfilled in and of themselves. In fact, the New Testament says the blood of goats, bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And yet, there was this elaborate procedure of sacrifices that happened throughout the whole Old Testament. And what we see in the New Testament is that all of those Old Testament practices were ultimately meant to point to what Jesus would do. And Jesus would finally and fully become a sacrifice once and for all, and he would pay the penalty for the sins of all humankind. And in that, we were able to set aside some of the Old Testament ceremony, some of the Old Testament sacrifices, and those things were set aside because Jesus had fulfilled their final intent. And so those are things that we no longer have to process. R.C. Sproul wrote about these. He said, these things were shadows of what was to come. They were symbols that pointed beyond themselves to what would come in the fullness of time. When the final sacrifice would be made and the ultimate atonement offered, these shadows would then be discarded. So do you see how this works? The, the Old Testament rituals and sacrificial system was, was an object lesson or visual aid that God teaching humanity taught us exactly that, that, that through the shedding of blood is the only way we can enter God's presence, that he is holy and because we are not, that we have to enter through the shed blood of another. But when Jesus fulfilled that, those things were set aside because we were then free to enter directly into the presence of the Lord. Now what happened over time as you kind of see the progress through the Old Testament, is the Israelites began to wrap themselves around these cultural ways of operating, and they became prideful. Uh, they became self-righteous. They began to say, well, we do all these things right, and all those people out there don't do these things, and so therefore we are clean, and they are unclean. Instead of saying, God is making us clean through faith, they began to say, we ourselves are clean, and those people out there are unclean. In fact, they began to call them things like dogs. And it began this racial 
tension that began to emerge through this. And this is what we see when we come to, uh, to Acts chapter 10 and to Acts chapter 11, is that this tension was, was really high for Peter and for all the people. And so when Peter sees this vision of these unclean clean animals that come down, and they begin to, uh, and God says, rise, kill, and eat. It's interesting because what God is saying is you are to, you're not to call something unclean that I have made clean. And so God is going to really take a torch to kind of this house of straw that they made and burn it down. In fact, what, what Peter says was what God has made clean, or what God says to Peter is what God has made clean, do not call common. Who's the one that made something clean or unclean? It isn't inherently who you are. It's what God has made clean. And if God can make it clean, then you have no business calling something common. It's why Peter earlier said, look, I didn't understand, but God has shown me I should not call any person common or unclean because if God makes something clean, then it's clean indeed. And so Peter begins to understand. This was the whole point of the vision that God gave to Peter. Now you get to verse 12, and what we see is this theoretical, um, because there's a lot of theoretical stuff going on in this vision, right? This theoretical becomes really practical as Peter goes back and engages with Cornelius. So verse 12, we see this. He says, the spirit told me to go with these Gentile men, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered into this man's house. So it's the spirit's direction. So God sent me into this place. And what did God say? Make no distinction, meaning I want you to go in their house and don't discriminate against them. I want you to go without hesitation. I want you to go without flinching. I want you to go directly into their house, make no distinction between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. I want you to go in and treat them just as you would treat anyone else. So make no distinction. It's interesting too that Peter references this and says, hey, I took six dudes with me. In Jewish law, you had to have two people to, to prove as witnesses of a true event. Peter's like, I got three times that. I took six guys. So the Spirit sent me, and I got six dudes. They all saw this happen. So he's defending himself to this criticism that they're making about all that's going on. And so as you get into verses 13 to 15, Peter talks about how he shares the gospel with Cornelius, with his friends, and with his family. And he says, as soon as he explained it to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as it fell upon us at the beginning. Now here's an interesting thing. Peter's a preacher. And what Peter's saying is, I love the way he says this. As soon as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. It's like he's a little bit annoyed. He's like, dude, I was just getting warmed up. Like I was starting my sermon. I was starting to get loose. I was really getting into it. And then God interrupted the whole thing and just sent the Spirit. And everyone started speaking in tongues. And there's all this stuff that happened. And my sermon got completely shut down. Um, but, but Peter, uh, I think there's a little bit of humor there. But really what he's saying is, as soon as they understood the gospel message, as soon as they heard about Jesus, they believed it. They were so ready to receive the truth about Jesus that when they heard the message, they received it, and God said, they're mine. And he sent his spirit immediately to descend and fall upon them. And here's what's fascinating. What happens here is identical in Acts chapter 10 is identical to what happened in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? Uh, that God had told the, the disciples that after Jesus had resur been resurrected, it said that Jesus ascended to heaven, and he told the people, he said, you're to stay here, and you're to pray, and you're to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they were waiting, and they were praying, and in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit just descends upon them, and all of a sudden, they, it says that all the people began to speak in languages that were not their own. They didn't understand what was happening. They were hearing languages, and they're not their own, and this kind of multilingual, multicultural worship service just broke out through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so there's this really fascinating thing that happens in Acts 2. What happens in Acts 10 is a Gentile Pentecost. We call Acts 2 Pentecost because it's where the descendants, uh, the, the Spirit descended upon them. Acts chapter 10, what you get is a Gentile Pentecost. The same thing that happened to the Jews in Jerusalem now happens to all the Gentiles in exactly the same way. So Peter is dumbfounded. In fact, in chapter 10, what it says is, while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on, on all who heard the gospel. And the believers among the circumcised, so all the Jewish believers who had traveled with Peter to watch what was happening, it says all the believers among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. So do you see what's happened to this kind of cultural barrier that the Jews had put up around the gospel of God? That everything's getting exploded. They're amazed. They don't understand. They're going, wow, what's happening? What happened to us is now happening to them, and there's no distinction between the two. And it's an amazing thing. So watching all this that happens, Peter begins to reflect on it. And so remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter was there when this happened with Cornelius. Now it says he stayed with them several days, then he traveled to Jerusalem. Now he's talking to all his old buddies back in Jerusalem, explaining to him what had happened. And you can tell he's beginning to connect the dots between his experience and what, got what Jesus had taught him earlier. In fact, verse 16, it says, Peter remembers an important thing Jesus had said just a couple years ago. It says, I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Meaning, John baptized according to the external practice of baptizing with water, but you're going to be baptized internally through the presence of the Holy Spirit. God's going to do a new thing, Jesus says. And Peter's now going, oh, when Jesus told us that, he was talking about what we're seeing right now, that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon all people. And friends, by the way, isn't this oftentimes how we grow spiritually? Can you relate to that experience where you, know, you go through something, uh, something happens in your life and you're trying to make sense of it and you're just thinking about it and as you go through the, the next days or weeks or months, you begin to look back and you see things in the scripture and you're like, oh, this is what, this is what God was trying to tell me. This is what all those verses trying to say. And you kind of have a new awakening or understanding of the truth of the scripture and it begins to get worked out in your life. We don't always, we don't come to faith fully formed. Uh, just like your kid doesn't pop out of the womb knowing everything and has to grow and learn, we aren't born again spiritually and we don't know everything. We don't just download. We don't just kind of like, you know, stick a, stick a cord into our arms and download the truth like the matrix. Uh, there's a process of growth. And what we're seeing with, with Peter is that God is working with him to help him grow over time and come in understanding of deeper gospel truth. Uh, which is why when you get to verse 17 and 18, uh, the people that, that Peter's talking to, as he begins to explain all the things that are transpiring, they're having lights go off in their head as well. And it says, if then the same gift is given to them that was given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in the way of what God was doing? And what, what Peter's saying is, if, if God is doing this thing, I can't get in the way. I can't allow my cultural preferences and my experiences to get in the way of what God's doing through the gospel. Friends, some of you need to hear this good news, I think, from Peter's lesson today. Some of you need to realize that if God says you're mine, no man can stand in the way. If, if God says you belong to him and you're part of his family, there's no one who can snatch you away from the Lord. If the Lord intends to make you his, no one else is going to pull you away from him. But he will continue to perfect that which he began in you. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, do you not know that your own body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Jesus purchased your salvation. God himself sent his Holy Spirit to live within you. And if God has, has taken up residence in you, if Jesus has paid the, right, the price for your life, then you are not your own. You belong to him. And friends, that should be good news. Do you understand that, if, that God won't misplace those who belong to him? God won't forget those who, that belong to him. God won't cast aside those who belong to him. Those, God won't abandon those who belong to him. God won't become bored by those who belong to him. If you belong to the Lord, you belong to him forever. And there's nothing you can do to undo that. The Spirit has sealed his eternal acceptance of you. That's what was happening as we see the Spirit poured out upon these Gentile believers. Verse 18, it's why it says, when they heard these things, they all fell silent. All their protests, all their concerns, all their criticisms, they were shut down and they worshiped and glorified God. Um, I love the, the picture that that had and what that would have been in the midst of that moment. And they said, well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And it's not just us, but now the salvation has come to them. This phrase, repentance that leads to life, is an important phrase in this whole passage. In fact, repentance is a summary statement for the gospel. That repentance is to, to turn around, to turn away from your old ways and turn to new ways, to be transformed in a, in a different direction. So what we're saying is there's no salvation without repentance. Repentance is something that God gives. He grants it. And friends, it's part of our being saved and coming to faith in Christ is we, we don't hold on to our old ways. We have to actually turn away from our old ways in turning to Christ, that you don't get to have both. You have to turn away from one in order to embrace the other. But our salvation comes with repentance that leads to life. And that repentance is a renouncing and a rejecting of our old ways as these were not enough. These were insufficient. These weren't going to lead me to the fullness of life and the eternal life that God wants for me to have. So I'm turning away and renouncing from those and I'm turning towards Christ. And that ultimately is to life. Uh, this phrase, repentance that leading unto life, is talking about salvation. It's talking about new life. Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, that we would have the abundant life, that we'd have a joyful life, that we would have life that is truly life. But the focus is always on this glad-hearted acceptance because we found real life. Meaning it's not hard to turn away from that which is insufficient if we found something better. And so we exchange the old way for something new because what is new is greater and is better for all of us, which is uh, what the, I think Peter experienced and what they want us to understand. Now, here's what we're going to see. I want to just kind of try to, to wrap this up a little bit as we come to the end of these two weeks. Uh, friends, do you see how important this is for you and for me? I want to unpack uh, just a couple ways in which I think this applies to us. But what we need to see is God's opening a new way of coming to him through Christ alone. That the old system is being set aside and there's a new system that's in place. And this gospel message and the core of the gospel message is everything that, that Acts 10 and 11 are trying to help us see. So let me give you five things uh, this teaching guides in our lives. So five ways this teaching, uh, the things we've learned in this passage help guide our lives. Uh, first is we must separate the core of the gospel from its cultural husk. 
those places in our lives where, where the truth of, of what God has said, the, the gospel message has gotten in, in, enmeshed with the culture around us, we need to do the hard work of differentiating the cultural stuff from the gospel message and the core of the message. My friend who wrote this article wrote, uh, talked, about, uh, talked about this process. In fact, he says, he says uh, that we all need to res- recognize the tension that's caused by issues with our religious culture. Uh, that, that we're not necessarily um, kind of having difficulty with Christianity itself. Because I think that's what happens a lot of times in our world is we begin to have problems with Christians and we begin to allow it to interfere with our Christianity. Uh, any of you relate to this? That you look at the, the people that call themselves Christians in the world and you go, man, if that is Christianity, I'm not sure I want anything to do with it. If, if that cultural way of operating is what Christianity is all about, I'm not sure I want to be called by the same thing those people call themselves. And so we began to wrestle with some of the tensions in those things. And part of what we need to do is we need to learn to differentiate the core Christian message from the cultural baggage that sometimes wraps itself around it. So from the, the politics or the race or, or, or the way in which we operate or the, the celebrities we follow or the way in which we, we, we eat or the way in which we practice life, uh, some of these things need to be differentiated from the core Christian message. The core Christian message doesn't tell you whether you should be homeschooled or private schooled or public schooled. Those are cultural things, but the core gospel is not determined by those things. And so what scripture tells us we have to do is we have to practice a lot of freedom for one another in the cultural aspects because we want to preserve the gospel message as something that we are willing to sacrifice. Now, my friend writes this. Disenculturation shows us it's possible to differentiate the gospel from culture, but it doesn't mean the gospel can experience, be experienced without any culture. The whole point of freeing the gospel from one culture is so that it can take root in another. This means your task is not to find the unicorn of a cultural-free Christianity. Rather, it's to learn to live your faith in your current culture. Um, it's a little bit difficult to understand, but what we have to do is we need to learn how to live distinctively Christian lives within the culture in which we find ourselves. So we hold on to that which is most important, the core of the gospel. We display freedom in many of the other aspects, but we hold on to the truth and we allow that to shape our lives so that we in the church create a gospel culture within these walls. Within the the people we call the church, we have a distinctively gospel culture. And we give ourselves freedom in some of the other areas. And then we go outside the walls of the church and we live, we, we, we live a distinctively Christian life to shine as the light of Christ in our world, not placing those demands on the, all those things upon people, but living in the midst of our culture, but not enslaving the gospel to our culture. Does that make sense? You see how important that is in our day? Do you see how relevant the Bible is to the things we deal with? It's amazing. It's like God knew stuff we were going to face and gave us a word to help guide us and all these things. So the first thing is we need to separate the core of the gospel from the cultural husk we live in. Second, we need to recognize that all people are equals in Christ. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter says, God showed me this lesson. It's important for us. God, it's interesting. God put them through a series of divine actions where God literally led them every step of the way. One guy said uh, that the church did not lead in this, but the church had to follow God's leading, thereby learning a great deal about how God views people. See, God sent Cornelius an angel. God sent Peter a vision from heaven. God made men come and walk Peter directly back to Cornelius. God sent the Holy Spirit to fall upon the Gentiles without any aid. God is driving this whole thing because he's like, I want to shine bright lights on this and make sure you understand there is no distinction between this group and that group, but all are equals in Christ. Third, we must admit that we all need repentance of both sin, uh, to repent of both sin and self-righteousness. It's interesting, Cornelius is a man described in Acts 10 as a man who was a, a devout man. He was a good man who led his family in things of worship. He uh, was a moral man. He was a generous and kind man who cared for the poor. He prayed regularly. And yet, what we see throughout this passage is that, that he was not a Christian. Despite all his goodness and desire for God, Cornelius did not have life until he repented of his old way and trusted Jesus. And so until he understood and heard the gospel message preached from Peter, um, until he, he did not have forgiveness of sins, he did not have peace with God, he did not have new life that God was birthing in him until he heard the gospel. Friends, people will not be saved without hearing the message of Jesus and receiving it by faith. That is how we are saved, is we turn away from our old ways and we embrace the message of the gospel of Christ and every one of us needs it. Now, without Christ, we can, people can be wonderful people they can be kind and generous, just like Cornelius. They can pray occasionally. They can have a general idea of how God, who God is. They can, they can generally try to follow the morals and ethics of Judeo-Christian faith. But apart from Jesus, they're still without salvation in the world. And they're not truly believers. There's a difference between seeking God and entering into fellowship with God by faith. And all of us need to come to faith in Christ. Friends, you may be here today and you may be a good person. Maybe a kind person, maybe a moral person. You may pray from time to time, but if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for your salvation, the scriptures say that you are not at peace with God and they're still going to be judged by your own sins and you still need forgiveness. Friends, have you believed this gospel? Have you received it for yourself? Have you made it your own? If not, then why not trust the gospel today and enter into the new life Jesus died to bring you? And fourth, we must believe that gospel faith leads to life that is really life. Um, ultimately, what we see is repentance moves to life. Jesus said, unless someone is born of the water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's pointing to this passage and what's happening. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. This is what Peter understood was happening with the Gentiles when he said, oh, and Jesus said, John baptized with water, I will baptize you with the spirit. This is what he was talking about. That you're not gonna have just an external cleansing that ritual is able to do, but you're gonna have an internal cleansing by the spirit who's going to baptize you and make you his own. You're going to become him. And fifthly, we respond in awe and worship toward our God of grace. Verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. It's the people that when they saw everything God was doing, 
when they, they, they thought back on the miracle, the spirit that had descended upon them in Acts 2, and now they understood that Jesus, who said that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, is now scattering that gospel, and the Gentiles and these people in all these other places are experiencing the same descent of the spirit, meaning that God is saying, these are mine. I'm taking, I'm taking ownership of these people and they will be mine. They are those that whom I have saved and the gospel is theirs just as much as it is yours and there's no distinction between any of these people and they're blown away. And so in awe, they're simply silent and they begin to worship. Friends, that's a good place to end, isn't it? Um, let's see if we can practice that same thing. Father, I pray that we would be silenced as far as our culture cultural preferences go, but that we would be bold about your gospel. Father, would you help us to understand all that you want us to understand, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Father, make us aware of this in new ways day by day. I pray it in Christ's name.